a war on public service, and now he's conducting a war on whistleblowers. He is trying to bring the government, as Steve Bannon would say, the deconstruction of the administrative state. He's trying to make the government as weak as it can be, and he's weaponized the government to suit his own personal interests. That's what this is all about, his process of weaponization. So right now we're stuck with very few people who are willing to stand up against him. One of these courageous souls is the whistleblower. Another is the whistleblower of the director of national intelligence, who's been extremely courageous, yes. uh, who will be testifying. Yeah. And the reason why I think this whistleblower was naive, and though obviously this is a very smart guy, anyone who's read his nine-page letter, which right. is beautifully and powerfully written. And very clear, uh, everyone, very clear very, to follow. Exactly. You can understand. In fact, I had a professor who once said, you should be able to read a person's topic sentences and you'll know exactly what is being said. Well, all you have to do is read his topic sentences. Yes. If you don't have time to read the whole letter, which right. uh, Mike Pompeo said he was... He didn't have time to do, to do. yes. And I then, know. of course, he was lying about his participation in that phone call uh, to begin with. Just read his topic sentences. But I think he was naive in thinking that the general counsel at the CIA was a real uh, legitimate uh, legal advisor. No, he's someone who really... He's like a mob lawyer. He's protecting the director of the CIA, so the first thing this general counsel did was to notify the White House about right. the whistleblower. And right. because there's so few CIA people on rotation to the White House, uh, it allows Trump to play this game of I don't know who he is. Of course he knows who he is. Yeah. Everyone in the White House knows who the CIA's uh, staffer was. Yeah. And at least he was smart enough to get a lawyer yeah. uh, who's defending him pro bono, which is important. And he's went to the right practice who has experience in dealing with whistleblowers. Hmm. Um but wow. it's hard to say where this is going to go because it's all happening so fast. All right, so, so really, we're counting on Adam Schiff to get this right. Right. At, at least it's in the hands of the right person. And Nancy Pelosi realizes that. She saw what a bad job Jerry Nadler did of conducting uh, testimony from Corey Lewandowski a week yeah. or so ago. And that's why she's tilted in favor of Adam Schiff, who's an extremely impressive congressman. Right. So let me on, just on all read, levels. Right. And another nugget from your article. I started reading some of it to our audience while we were getting you. But here's something important. I want people to hear this because I want them to understand how whistleblowers. This is not the first whistleblower in this administration. What you point out, which is crucial here, whistleblowers are essential to our democracy. And then you write, since Trump's inauguration, whistleblowers have recorded the improper granting of security clearances to members of Trump's administration, the Department of Energy's illegal plan to transfer nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, the transfer of scientists from research on climate change, the abuse of families and children in detention at immigration centers. This was being notified by whom? By whistleblowers. And I think it's really important for people to understand this is not an isolated whistleblowing situation. It may be the most provocative. It may finally have pushed us to the point where we can finally begin the impeachment. But there have been so many other whistleblowers. I want you to go back to something you said, though. I want to make sure I understand. In other settings, whistleblowers don't have to go to someone else before they report it to Congress, but only only in this situation must they go up the food chain? It, what is unique about it, this? In a normal setting, say okay. Department of Agriculture or Department right. of Commerce or Department of the Treasury, once you file your whistleblower complaint, uh, which you do through the inspector general, okay. then a whistleblower has the right to go to the Congress and the correct oversight committee for that particular government department and give the details of the whistleblower complaint. But if you're with the intelligence community, 
uh, and you look at the original 1989 Whistleblower Protection Act okay. and the supplements that were added to it in the 1990s, if you're from the intelligence community, you cannot go to the Congress until you sit down with the director of your agency or someone he appoints okay. who goes over your testimony and is in a position to say, no, you can't say that, or this is a national security Got matter, it. and you can't say that. Got so it. therefore, uh, someone is there to censor what you're going to say. <sighs> so when I went to the Congress and testified against Robert Gates in 1991, I did not show my statement. I didn't go back to the CIA to say, this is what I'm going to be saying at the closed door uh, session, mm -hmm. which was held in September of uh, 1991. Uh, I, I took a risk, I guess, but my feeling was this is uh, an unfair uh, bureaucratic right. way of uh, spinning the work of a whistleblower. And I look at whistleblowers as truth tellers. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to. I wouldn't want bureaucratic interference. And if nothing else, once this thing is settled, they, the Congress has to go back to their whistleblower laws to see how they can really protect a whistleblower. So I'm going to have to Congress right. thinks they can do it, but they can't. Okay, so I have a couple of recommendations. Your next counterpunch article, rewrite the whistleblower law. At least offer suggested amendments to the whistleblower law, because I think that that's important, and I think the 2020 candidates need to sort of see this as they sort of move forward, because whether they like it or not, yes, they're going to be asked about health care. Yes, they're going to be asked about immigration. But guess what? They're going to be asked about this. So I think that that well, would be useful. I think that you're making a good point. Now, I remember in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton, was, who was so uninformed about whistleblower laws, talked about all the protections for whistleblowers. She had no idea right. what the legal situation was, yet she tried to talk about it. Right. And, uh, so and, you're right. There's a lot of ignorance about this. I think the, the particular courage of this whistleblower has led to people being better informed. Uh, but look at the acting director of NI of National Intelligence. Right. Look at his poor testimony, and, and look how weak he was, oh, it was in going to the White House and the Justice Department to sort of cover his ass. This was very dangerous in terms of protecting a whistleblower. Okay, so right now the Inspector General has uh, basically called all these different members of the House and Senate to meet in a special meeting. What the hell do you think that's about? Now you're talking about the State Department Inspector General. Yeah, the State Department Inspector General. Well, the only thing that comes out of his statement, and I think he's going to testify this afternoon, is that he has uh, documents from the legal advisor of the State Department. And that title, legal advisor, sounds uh, very pedestrian, but really that's a very powerful position. And like so many powerful positions uh, in Washington because of the Trump administration, it's been given over to an extremely weak uh, lawyer who really doesn't have the stature to be the legal advisor. So I have no idea what wow. this inspector general has, but I assume it has something to do uh, with Ukraine, or it could have a lot to do with, with Pompeo's efforts uh, to investigate the 130 people who sent emails to Hillary Clinton, opening, you know, reopening the whole email issue from right. Hillary Clinton right. uh, from the last election to go after these people once again, which is highly unusual and I think illegal, and I think the Congress has to get involved in that. Because once you raise um, the security clearances of someone like a State Department officer, he could lose his job. He or she could lose his job over that. Right. And if you lose your security clearance and you're in this national security field, you're going to have a very difficult time getting another job. And I always look at the example of Thomas Drake for the National Security Agency, who did everything a whistleblower 
should do. He did it correctly, and Obama still went after him under the Espionage Act, and he's never been able to get another job uh, with the government. He's now working for an Apple store in Bethesda, Maryland, oh. my hometown. Oh, God, I think they should make that into a documentary. Um, so before I let you go, though, Mel, what I'm trying to figure out now is um, how did the whistleblowers – information get to Congress. It looks like everybody was trying to sit on it, not allow it to go through. DOJ said, no, there's nothing here. It's not criminal. That isn't even the standard criminal. So did he, did the whistleblower eventually sort of break the rules in order for folks within uh, the Congress to actually know? How did they find out? Well, I don't think he broke the rules. I think he's trying to be very careful. This whistleblower has has done everything right. How did Congress find out? Uh, I assume that if, if, if they found out through channels, then it was the inspector general, the director of national intelligence, okay. who has really countered the acting director of national intelligence at every step. And if you look at his background, if you Google his name, this is a guy with an outstanding background who's doing okay. exactly what an inspector general uh, should be doing. Okay. But remember, it was Barack Obama who weakened these uh, inspectors general, and it was Hillary Clinton's state who never had an inspector general. Uh, on her staff when oh she was God. Secretary of State from 2009 to 2012, which is how she got into this email controversy. An inspector general could have stopped her from doing something as stupid as having your own email server. So inspector generals are very important individuals. So last, last point, you mentioned Obama weakening it. What the hell was that about? Was that just about enhancing his power? I think, he, I think uh, Obama was uh, intimidated by the national security community, both the Pentagon and the CIA. Uh, yeah. And the covert action officers who really control the CIA never liked the institution of the inspector general because they didn't want anyone inspecting uh, their clandestine work. So he used Leon Panetta, the CIA director, to weaken the position of the inspector general. And for most of the first term of Obama's first term, when Leon Panetta was CIA director, there was no uh, inspector general in place. The one who hung on and didn't resign until Obama was elected, an old friend of mine, John Helperson, was not replaced for about 18 to 24 months. Oh, God. So this, uh, that's the best. That's the way you uh, weaken an institution. Either you don't name someone or you do what Trump vacant. does, put acting people in yeah, control exactly. everywhere exactly. who've never been confirmed by the Senate in the first place, oh. which is a way of circumventing the Constitution. So, Mel, this conversation needs to go on 60 Minutes. Because, because I think people need to understand this is not a case of first impression. That this okay, is, this your, your job is to get me on. All right, it's a deal. It's a deal. Mm-hmm. Trump's war on whistleblowers. We're talking with Mel Goodman. Go to Counterpunch. Go to my Facebook page. You'll find a link to it. A former CIA analyst, a whistleblower himself, a prolific writer. He's also teaching. Where are you teaching right now? Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. All right. Thank you so much for making the and, time. And look at the book, Whistleblower at the CIA, The Politics of Intelligence. You got That'll it. tell you everything you need to know. All right. Everyone got your Kindle ready? Let's start going. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank Bye-bye, you, Arnie. Mel. Bye-bye. Always good to talk to you. All right. Always good to talk to you. This is The Attitude with Arnie Arneson and Ken Barnes. A little labor history is next. Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1949. That was the day Americans awoke to fears the nationwide steel strike would spread rapidly to include key fabrication plants. Half a million steel workers had joined 400,000 coal miners on strike the morning before. The miners resolved to defend their $100 a month pension, instituting what John L. Lewis called the no-day work week, emboldened the steel workers to walk out of the mills. Within 24 hours, 96% of all steel production in the country was completely shut down. United Steelworker contracts were due to expire on the 15th, but the writing was on the wall. 
the mill owners decried anything close to mine pensions as nothing short of socialistic and refused to budge in negotiations. United Steelworkers President Phil Murray thundered that those companies that failed to agree to demands for non-contributory pensions and insurance would be shut down. But militants warned that President Truman's fact-finding board had already watered down strike demands. The president's board had been established to put off two previous strike deadlines. The guidelines it issued only encouraged steel magnates to stand tough against United Steelworker demands. These included a 30-cent raise plus increased company insurance and pension contributions. Now, it had become a defensive struggle over whether steelworkers would have to begin contributing to health and pension plans through wage cuts. By the time steelworkers ended their strike 42 days later, they had won the $100 a month pension minus what they would receive from Social Security. And they had to begin contributing to a health insurance plan with no wage increase at all. Still, workers celebrated that they had successfully defended the United Steelworkers against the all-out union-busting drive. Our guest is totally impressed with this song. If you you shouldn't call the doctor if you can't afford the bills. They're like it just nails it, nails it, nails it. Everyone. And I picked it because I thought Libby oh. would really love it. Uh, <laughs> how could she? How how could she not love it? Um, so I was going to the New Republic, and I saw this article about the fetishization of healthcare. And I, I I looked at the title and I went, oh, what the hell is this about? And then I read the article. And uh, when I when I called our guest, I said to her, who are you? And I said, the reason I said that is you write like I think. Oh, my God. Uh, joining us right now on the phone is Libby Watson. She uh, is a reporter for the uh, New Republic. Her piece was really uh, Libby. It's just phenomenal because you really do dissect the Democrats fear of actually addressing the failure of our healthcare system. And you do it in such a way that by the time you get done, I, I kept posting on my Facebook page, read this opening paragraph, read the last two paragraphs, read the middle paragraphs. By the time I got done, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, all right, just read the whole damn thing. So, so Libby, first of all, walk us through what we know about health care, because right now we know the government provides a significant amount of health care. And I've always said how stupid the government was, that we took care of the old people 
and the poor sick people. And then we left the insurance companies, all the young, healthy people. I mean, talk about a system set up to fail. I mean, so from the very beginning, we actually enhanced the profitability of big insurance, and we actually made it more difficult for us to actually manage the system. And then as you look into where we are today, the system is not really getting better despite the ACA, including more people. It still is controlled by big pharma and big insurance, and that's not about health care. It's about profit. Right, absolutely. Um, no, I think I think that's absolutely right. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, the situation we have with healthcare right now, you, we have about half the country is on employer-sponsored healthcare um, in some way. You know, they get their either they are employed and they get that insurance from the employer, or you know, they're on a family plan. Um, you know, with a member of their family has employer-sponsored healthcare. So that's about half the country. The rest of the country has either various government insurance programs or, uh, like you said, or they get their insurance on the Affordable Care Act marketplace. Um, And then we still have about 27 million people who are uninsured entirely. Um, And that number actually went up for the first time in, you know, since the passage of the ACA last year. Right. Um, But as you say, it's, you know, what my piece was about was um, about how this divide between people with, um, employer-based insurance and people with other kinds of insurance or no insurance at all is, is really about class. Um, it is about you know, class. If you have, uh, if you are lucky enough to have good employer-based insurance um, and not get sick very often or, you know, not have a chronic illness, then you might not even realize how bad your insurance is. I think a lot of people don't realize how bad their employer-sponsored yes. insurance is until they actually try to use it. Um, but, you know, otherwise, it might work very well for them, you know, one of the craziest things, um, I think, in my piece was last week, um, some data came out from the Kaiser Family Foundation about the, the cost of employer-sponsored insurance. And for a family plan now, to, you know, for the a- average annual premium for family coverage is $20,000 a year now, yeah. um, which is just, you know, that's the price of a new car every year. Mm. Um, but people who are on that kind of insurance don't necessarily know just how expensive it is because the employer covers most of that. You know, my mm-hmm. employer is, is paying for, you know, like 70, 80, 85% of the premium. And I'm, I'm only pay, you know, paying more than I would like, yeah. <laughs> a lot less than that. Um, so, you know, they're kind of insulated from how expensive this system really is. And especially if you don't have to go to the hospital or the doctor a lot, um, you know, you don't really get a lot of medical bills where you're looking at and you're like, wait a second, why does it cost, you know, $600 for a Band-Aid or whatever this crazy stuff that hospitals, that, that hospitals charge? Um, you know, the, the existence of this system where employers subsidize the care of generally, you know, a lot of the better off workers in our system yeah. uh, means that, you know, they're, they're kind of detached from the realities of, of how bad the healthcare system is. And, you no, know, that's absolutely. not and then, and then, but you know, so let, let me just share a really quick vignette. So, um, I, I ran for governor and Congress in the 90s. And I remember going up to a, a nursing home in one of the poor counties. It was a county nursing home. And, um, the whole question was, was about their benefit package, right? And their remuneration package. And so one of the women pulled me aside and she said, well, they do provide us with a benefit package, Arnie, but none of us can afford it. Because our cost of contribution to the premium, okay, to the premium was more than half of our salary every month. So on paper, 
We have access to health care. On paper, our employer is providing us with health care. In reality, nobody has exercised it because we are the lowest wage workers in the nursing home. We're living in the poorest county in the in the state. Obviously, it's not that the county nursing home didn't want to provide them with a health care package, but they weren't funded adequately either. So it looked like on paper that they were giving their employees health benefits, but in reality, nobody had it because they couldn't afford it. The nursing home couldn't afford what they knew they needed to cover, and the people who were working couldn't afford their cost of the premium or deductibles. So again, right. this is the, the fiction of healthcare, is that when you look especially at low-income workers, which is what you point out, the low-income workers really get shafted, even if they do have a health care package, it sucks. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah, I mean, that, that data showed that uh, companies that have a lot of low-wage workers, the average premium tends to be uh, lower, which doesn't mean that the care is better. That usually means the care is worse. Yes. It means that it's more likely that the employee is going to have to face a you know, four, five, you know, $6,000 deductible before they can even use the care, which just renders it functionally useless. Like, if you have to shell out six grand before you can get care, the, you know, the average American you know, can't even afford a $400 expense. You know, there's you know, unexpected expense without putting it on credit if they have that. So the idea that someone could pay six thousand dollars <laughs> towards a deductible if you know something catastrophic happens, they get hit by a car or diagnosed with cancer or something, then they got to pay that six grand oh. up front. And you know, the, one of the craziest things is the way that deductibles work is that they reset every year. So if you get diagnosed with cancer exactly. in December and you know start a treatment that's very expensive. Good luck paying it again in January. Well, I mean, I think yeah. people don't understand how many people go bankrupt but have insurance. They don't. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't. They don't get the idea that how is it possible for me to actually go bankrupt? After all, I had insurance. Except twenty percent that may be your contribution plus your deductible plus what you have to pay for some of your drugs. By the time you actually calculate that out, if you get any kind of significant illness, could be as much as forty, fifty, seventy thousand dollars. That's just your. Con- contribution. They don't understand. Right. And you're lucky. Not everybody is sick. You know, so so if you're not sick, you've never had to test your your mm-hmm. insurance. But now we've been getting more crazy because what I, my, my my senators, Maggie Hassan and Jean Shaheen, are talking about surprise billing. Now you mm-hmm. have to go in into a hospital and go, by the way, a doctor in this hospital, are you in my network or not? The person is about to put you under. Excuse me, are you in my network? Can you imagine asking these questions? You're hysterical because you're ill. And suddenly the idea of someone in your hospital, in your your backyard may in fact be an out of network doctor who would ever think that that would be out of network since they're in like you know 14 feet from where you live right yeah i mean another oh. piece i wrote for the new Republic a couple of weeks ago was about hospital prices um you know obviously there's a little coverage of hospitals that sue their patients for yes. um their bills uh you know and they end up going bankrupt or whatever but the thing is is that a lot of these prices are just straight up made up like they will just make up prices for mm-hmm. procedures because no one is forcing them to set the prices fairly. It's just what the market determines. Yeah. Um, and so they'll set these crazy list prices, and then they negotiate with individual insurance companies about what they will pay. Um, so, you know, when you have insurance, insurance will pay a set amount, and that's fine. But if you are unlucky enough to be uninsured or you, uh, if it turns out your doctor is out of network, right. then you're stuck with this completely made-up price. You know, I mean, there was one case I cited in that, 
uh, article where a hospital in Wisconsin decided to actually look at how much a knee surgery costs as opposed to what they were charging. They were charging $55,000 for this procedure. And the, the hospital itself determined that it was actually only about $10,000, that it would only cost $10,000. But it was just because they happened to decide to look into it that they even found that out. The whole system is, bas- is, is basically fraudulent. Like the whole system of hospitals deciding how much they're going to charge mm. is basically fraudulent. But that, the fact that that's fraudulent doesn't protect patients who end up, like you say, like being out of network or whatever. And then they're stuck just paying these ridiculous charges. So I, I mentioned to you that I, I really want you to look into unions and their idea that they don't want to give up their Cadillac plans. And what I was mm. saying to you was, and I, I, I posted my... Uh, video interview uh, on Fox News. I did Fox News on Saturday, and they brought up the UAW strike. And we need to talk about this out loud as well, because that's one of the big wedge issues between the progressive candidates and unions is, oh, my God, you've negotiated so long for these Cadillac plans, especially the UAW. I mean, I mean, what, and this is an absolute true statement, uh, Libby, is, and that is, is that they only pay 3% of the cost of their health care, only 3%. They, of course, have had to fight, craw, and go into union yeah. contracts forever to get it down to that. On average, it's usually about 15% or 20%. So they clearly have a great deal when it comes to health care. When it comes to their actual compensation package, however, every year they're seeing that they're getting less and less and less. In fact, I think they're making 10% less today than they were in like 2007 or 2008 mm-hmm. at the time of the bankruptcy. So they know they've had to give something up, even though GM is making a lot of money. But here's yeah. the kicker. What was the threat that the UAW had with GM? GM said, you go on strike or taking away your health care, pay for COBRA. And yeah. all of a sudden, everybody went ballistic because let's be honest, when you're getting $250 a week from the, the, the union, whatever payout plan mm, while you're strike on strike, fund, yeah. the strike fund, Cobra eats up that entire uh, strike fund, every single yeah, penny it's, of it's it. It's not more than that. If not more I than that. My job in, I left my previous job in August and I got a letter saying, yeah, if you want to sign up for Cobra, it's going to be 900 bucks a month. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. I'll just. I'll just pay that $900. I mean, that's, that's absurd, obviously. And that's what... But the thing is, is that's the rest of what my employer was paying. I never saw. When I was paying my... whatever. Stay close you know, to your cell phone. Stay close to your cell phone because we're losing you. I can hear an echo, so stay close. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. But, but, but I, I, I know exactly what you're saying, and, and I think until people hear this, until even the unions realize what's going on, mm-hmm. they are getting shafted. It's a divide and conquer, and, the, and by dividing and conquering, what they're conquering is, is that they're really sort of succumbing to this idea that somehow they'll lose something if they give up having to negotiate about their health care, when in fact they'd be gaining something, which is an increased paycheck. I mean, they're like right. so, it's like so stupid. Do me a favor. Share with my audience your last two paragraphs. They are both incredibly powerful and incredibly poignant. And I think every Democrat needs to understand it because of pox on them, because they are so afraid. I mean, Joe Biden's idea of like, you know, we'll just tweak the Affordable Care Act or Medicare for all if you want it or all this other stuff still doesn't really fix the problem. And that is really, I think, at the core of this, because you're actually right. It is a class fight. Yeah, no, I, I completely, you want me to read my Yes, I would love to have you read your last two paragraphs because I want everyone to hear every word of it because I posted it and I said, listen to this. This is the marching orders. This is the truth. I will, I will do that right now. 
There are enough people in this country who are being robbed, abused and killed by our healthcare system that this lucky minority of privileged people needn't kill the hope of adopting a more just and equitable system. If Democrats went after the votes of the poor and disenfranchised who are fighting for their lives, that anger and misery could easily be turned into votes, provided they were being offered something beyond a means-tested band-aid. Instead of spending hundreds of millions of dollars on vanity projects and a doomed presidential run, Tom Steyer could spend all of that cash on getting voter IDs for minority voters in Republican states. Instead of running Joe Biden for president, a man whose own health care plan states that it would keep 10 million people uninsured, you could run someone who supports Medicare for all and isn't afraid to defend it, who finds the notion that there could be that many Americans left vulnerable and bereft to be indefensible. Democrats cosplay as the party of the poor and disenfranchised while brutally projecting their politics through a professional class lens. Perhaps this is the way to every suburban Panera Mon's heart and vote by allowing them to feel like they're participating in a cause more just than the project provides. This strategy came up short in 2016. Since then, the electorate has only gotten younger, less white, less affluent, and much more angry. Things may change. It's just a question of how many people have to die first. Libby Watson, uh, it is an incredible, I mean, I, I, I think at, at the beginning of a healthcare debate, I want to read those two paragraphs out loud to everyone <laughs> because, because you package it in such a powerful way. And again, I want to remind everyone, even with the Affordable Care Act, you can go bankrupt. All right. I mean, this yeah. is this is the irony of all this is that somehow they think that it was Nirvana. And I want to remind everyone it was a Heritage Foundation plan. The plan was written by whom? By the insurance industry and Big Pharma. The reason why there was no public option was because the insurance companies did not want a public option. That's why there was no public option. Let's be honest. It's, we need like a come to Jesus moment on this. And I just think in a way the Democrats have been afraid to sort of articulate what was real and what was Memrex. And you've only, to a large extent, you've got Bernie talking about Medicare for all. But explain to me, what is Elizabeth Warren doing? She seems to mouth it. But then when she's pushed on it, you know, she says, Mm -hmm. I'll work with the UAW. I'll work with, you know, unions on their issue. Why doesn't she teach them? I mean, don't work with them. Explain to them, you know, you're getting shafted and you're being told that you want to hold on to something that's actually harming you in the long run. Yeah, I definitely, I think there may be some kind of split between the the kind of union membership and the union leadership, because I think union leadership feels like they have something pretty good with with these, uh, you know, Cadillac plans or whatever, these negotiated plans. And I'm sure that a lot of union members do too. But like you say, there are, uh, you know, many more union members who are very vulnerable to, yes. uh, you know, without any kind of single-payer plan. Right. They're vulnerable. They know that, they're, you know, <laughs> I think a union member recognizes more than anybody the, the power that the boss has to upend their lives, you know, with things like this. And going on strike is really tough and really scary. Um, right. You know, no one wants to, no one wants to do that. Right. Uh, you know, whereas I think the union leadership are the ones who... Stay close to your phone. Stay close to your phone. Okay, keep going. Sorry. I think the union leadership are the are the ones who are kind of holding on to this, yes. you know, this thing that they've got, yep. um, which is completely, you know, separate from the interests of of their workers. Because, like you say, you know, it's the, a single player, a single payer plan would be in the interests of absolutely everybody. Even rich people would do better, I think, yeah. under single payer. Um, you and, know, I and mean, coming from a country with the NHS, I can't even tell you how different it is. Well, I, I, so there was a wonderful story done a couple of years ago. I'm going to see if I can find it and mail it to you. There were two brothers. 
And they both came down. I think they were twins. And they came down with a similar condition at the same time. One lived in England and one lived in the States. Both of them had actually relatively similar outcomes. But getting to those outcomes, it was so seamless in Great Britain. And it was so yeah. emotionally horrific in the United States. And, and, and the amazing thing is, is that you got to sort of compare and contrast what was happening. And interesting enough, the outcomes were the same. But to get there, what happened to the guy in the States, you would never want to replicate. You would never want to replicate. And I thought that was such an amazing story because, you know, in the end, everyone can say, oh, but look it. They're both healthy today. And then when you mm -hmm. looked at the emotional and economic instability that led to that healthiness in the United States, you would not wish that on anyone. And I think that's part of the problem, which is why I wish Elizabeth and Bernie and all those people would sit down with leadership of the UAW, but in the membership. Because I think you're absolutely right. The UAW leadership is clinging to something that actually enhances their power. It doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. make it isn't good necessarily for all their workers, but it enhances yeah. their power. But you know what they're afraid of, especially the UAW. They're afraid of all the new sort of workers who are temporary. And every single yeah. year, the number of temporary workers that are being hired by GM increases. The number of permanent workers decreases. And as a result, the, the, the conflict within the plant itself only gets worse and worse. And part of that conflict isn't just the pay, it's the benefit package. And those temporary workers are shafted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's really frightening. You know, like you said, the increase in temporary workers is true across many industries. You have things, you know, the sort of gig economy uh, workers, you know, Amazon delivery drivers and, and so on who right. are on contract. And, and they don't, it's a big problem in media too. Media is, you know, relying more and more on freelancers and part-time you know, workers who they don't have to provide health insurance for. And it's, I mean, it's a disgrace, obviously, that, that, that they're not doing that. But, you know, the, the benefits for people like that, if there were a single payer and they didn't have to worry about, you know, paying for health insurance or getting this terrible, expensive plan on the, the Affordable Care Act marketplace or whatever, I mean, it would be astronomical. But, you know, I think that's the other thing, you know, when, when it comes to employer-sponsored health care, it would obviously save companies a lot of money if they yes. didn't have to pay these crazy costs, but exactly. they don't want it because they know that it's something that they can use to control their workers. Right. It's a, it's a weapon. It's a weaponization of health care. Exactly. It is not yeah. an enhancement. It's not a benefit. It's a threat. And I think if people yeah. understood this actually plays into the hands of employers, it isn't good for employees, they would be totally outraged. And I just want to remind everyone, I went to my grandfather's 50th uh, retirement dinner. He worked for the AMP for 50 years and got a gold watch. I went to my father's 48th retirement dinner. He got a party and a bunch of crap. I've had 48 jobs. Okay, and I just want everyone to know that is the nature of work. We've had to be nimble for employees. There's uh, for employers. There's no sense of security in the workplace. More mm -hmm. people have to constantly gain new skills, figure out where they're going to have to move. How long will this job last? And as a result, not only do you not have a defined pension plan, you have very little in a 401k if you even have a 401k. And the idea that you're going to segue from one job to another, and that means you will not be covered by insurance. Who the hell would want that for anyone? Yes. Uh, Libby, I just want to go back to what you oh. said before mm -hmm. about there's just such a difference between the national health insurance that you had where you grew up and what we have here in the oh. United States. I don't think that all of our listeners really get it, how that's so different. 
and yeah. maybe you can illuminate in, it for us in language that we can understand in three minutes or less. In three minutes or <laughs> less, absolutely. But uh, I can tell you, I can tell you a really quick story. And you know, I say this all the time. That I think one of the the problems with Americans is that they can't even imagine a system as good as it could be. Right. Um, right. But uh, you know, for example, my mom, um, she has lung cancer, and uh, she uh, is lucky enough to have the kind of lung cancer that can be treated with immunotherapy, which is pretty new treatment um, is very, very expensive. Um, you know, it would cost, uh, you know, $100,000 a, a year or something or, um, you know, multiple thousands of dollars a month on uh, in America uh, if, if her insurance covered it or whatever. But getting it back home, she just goes to our local hospital every three weeks. She walks in, she gets the infusion, uh, and she walks out, and that's it. There's no billing. She doesn't have to get out her wallet at any point. She doesn't have to call the insurance company and make sure it's covered or whatever. I mean, obviously, you know, my mom has been a local NHS activist for my entire life. And, you know, we are very aware of uh, the the problems that come when, you know, successive governments have tried to underfund it or whatever. But all of the problems with the NHS come from underfunding it. They don't come from the system itself. They come from putting less resources into it than it needs. Um, You know, just just the difference of... You know, going to the doctor's office and knowing that you don't have to worry about whether your doctor is recommending a procedure because it might be more profitable for them or not worrying about which drugs are going to be covered or not worrying about getting a surprise bill because you woke up in the hospital and saw a doctor you didn't recognize. It's just every single aspect of the system, it touches on something where, you know, you, you realize, like, oh, I don't have to worry about who's making a buck off this. It's just about what is the best medical treatment, uh, what is the best outcome right, right. For, so for I, everybody. So here's my dream, Libby. Not only do I think what you write about is phenomenal and you write incredibly well and you and I are singing off the same script, but I want billboards all over the United States. You know what I want the billboards to say? Health insurance is not health care. Yeah. Health insurance is not. We have so been bludgeoned by insurance, 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 that we mm-hmm. see it as the only vehicle for us to be able to access a doctor, a drug, a hospital, and it is to the insurance industry that we genuflect. And that is what is so frightening. And I reminded everyone who was so afraid of Medicare for all, and I said, I want to know how many people when they hit 65 go, oh, my God, i got to give up my private insurance. Oh, my God, how could I be doing this? <laughs> I'm thinking I wanted to be 65 when I was 45. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, and, and that was, and I remember saying that that was the horrific thing, is that why did you have to age into access to health care? Why did I have to wait to 65? Why wasn't I privileged at 50? Why wasn't I privileged at 30? What was mm-hmm. it that said I shouldn't be able to join some kind of universal health care? Why did I have to wait to 65 when, frankly, it would be a benefit to my state and to my country if I was healthy and I didn't have to be afraid of going to a doctor about the whole affordability issue? The idea of being healthy is a security issue, let alone an economic issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of it being okay that there are winners and losers in this system, I think, is really key. I mean, the messaging about keeping your private insurance is so clearly directed to the people who are doing pretty okay. And, you know, that's not to say that there's, there's really very few people who uh, are extremely secure and very well off and right. never have to worry about health. You have to be really, really rich to not Thank have you. to worry about getting hit with a surprise bill or anything. Libby but Watson, system, I need to sorry. let you go. The fetishization of employer-provided health care Democrats continue to entrench their support for a health care system in which class warfare 
is a pre-existing condition. Fabulous writer. Welcome to New Republic. I'm so glad you're writing for them. We'll call you you again. Thank you, Libby Watson. Ciao. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right. And what do we end with? It's an amazing story. I'm telling you. It absolutely is an amazing story. We end with something dedicated to Donald Trump again. It's The Party's Over by Nat King Cole. Oh, I like that song. The party's over It's time to call it a day They've burst your pretty balloon And taken the moon away It's time to wind up The masquerade Just make your mind up The piper must be paid The party's over Support comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. Support comes from you and from Wayne Memorial Hospital and Wayne Memorial Health System. More than 200 health care providers serving residents in Wayne, Pike, and eastern Lackawanna counties in Pennsylvania and the upper Delaware region of New York State. WMH.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. This week on the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. We speak as the generation most affected by climate change. For us, it's not a political game. For us, it's about the kind of world I'm going to grow up in. I'm Neil Harvey. This week, our guest...